Good day, everyone. You're listening to Dwell on Truth. My name's Brenton Powers. And I'm Dan Bodwin. And today we're going to continue our study through the Gospel of John with chapter 11 and chapter 12. The chapter divisions are not necessarily inspired by God, and so (laughs) we're continuing to look at Jesus' relationship with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And we're going to talk about worship today and why we should value the things that some people value in this, but not the things that other people value in this story. And we'll see Judas and his reaction. He looked like a follower of Jesus from the outside, but on the inside uh, was a different story. Yeah, not so much. Yeah, there's definitely a contrast between those who were following Christ and those people who in some cases had actually seen the amazing works that Jesus had done and their reaction just honestly makes no sense to me sometimes. So let's begin by reading John chapter 11 verse 45 through the end and chapter 12 verse 1 through 11. Yes. Just verse by verse I'll start with the Odd verses. And Dan, would you read the even? I will. Okay. And we're reading from the English Standard Version if you guys want to follow along at home. Uh, John chapter 11, verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus, and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know, so that they might arrest him. Chapter 12, verse 1, since I'm reading the odd verses, I'll read again. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for three hundred denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Well, that's a good ending. I like that. Many people were believing in Jesus. I hope that (laughs) maybe by the end of this program, many people listening will believe in Jesus. Amen. I pray they do. Yeah. Well, this is a true story. Just to remind our listeners, Mm -hmm. our target audience is not to preach to the choir, but to share the good news with people who are not yet Christians Mm -hmm. and new believers, and people may have doubts and questions. So Mm -hmm. through this Bible study, we also hope to answer some of the commonly asked questions that people have when reading this. And I think the first thing I would say is that the chapter divisions were not inspired, but the actual text, Mm -hmm. every word 
that is found in the Greek manuscripts are inspired by God. And so Amen. every word is important, and not only are they inspired by God, some people will say, oh, it was written by people. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, no duh. People, <laughs> God used people to write this, but these people were eyewitnesses, they were followers of Jesus, and John in particular uh, was written by the Apostle John, the disciple yeah. that Jesus loved, yeah. who was a witness to these things. And you could tell by the way it's written. Absolutely. Details are included that only an eyewitness would write. Yeah, but it wasn't just written by John. There was a supernatural aspect to this, like there is to all of Scripture. And this sometimes confuses people from religious traditions like Islam or or uh, Mormonism or something like that, where it's supposed to be like almost like automatic writing, where God just dictated um, what he wanted put down. That's not the case with, with uh, the Christian Scriptures. There is the reality of that person's experience and and personality and background that's included, into the text, but Scripture also says that um, no prophecy ever came from the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. So the Spirit of God is pushing them along, carrying them forward, you know, using their, the reality of their own life and their own personality, but also superintending it in such a way that the message is perfectly communicated. That's what we believe as Christians. And of course, because of the evidence that we can see, you know, we, that can be backed up through Scripture. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't just the believers that saw this, Mm -hmm. uh, as it points out, even the religious leaders who rejected Jesus, they didn't deny that Lazarus was risen from the dead, but they tried to stuff the evidence by planning to kill Lazarus as well as Jesus. So this is clearly an unjust way to respond to the evidence that points to Jesus. If If you just try and suppress the truth by any means possible, it will lead to wicked things like murder. And that's why, unfortunately, there's been a long history of Christians being martyred mm-hmm. in the faith. Indeed. it Really, you, you've got to look at it from this perspective. If you're somebody that, that has questions about Christianity, questions are okay. Um, but when you hear the message, consider, are you thinking about the truth or are you thinking about the consequences? That's really what we come down to. Some people saw the truth as what it is, and other people in this story were more worried about, oh, no, what's going to happen to me if, if, not even if I accept this or not even if it's true, but, you know, how is this going to impact me here on earth rather than thinking, mm-hmm. if this man's from heaven, what does that mean? Yeah. But anyway, I get ahead of, uh, ahead of myself. We'll see that as we go through the text. Yeah, and so as we look at this last section in chapter 11, it's some of our Bible's translators do put a little heading there, and I like it. It's it's called The Plot to Kill Jesus. Mm-hmm. So just to underscore what we're saying, we see in verse 47 and 48 of John 11, so the chief priests and Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. He didn't deny the signs. Yeah. Uh, if we let him go on like this, they continued, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And I like what Caiaphas says in response to this. He says, you know nothing at all. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he was right about that. Yeah. What were they really fearful of? This It's like a self-protection of the Romans coming and taking away our place. We're going to lose our authority, our power over people. Exactly. It, It blows me away. They're asking completely the wrong question. You know, so they said, what are we to do for this man performs many signs? The question should have been, (laughs) who is this man and how can he perform these many signs? They're worried more about the consequences than the power and the glory that was appearing right in front of them. It's, oh my goodness, you guys are are missing the forest for the trees. You know, it it reminds me of the... uh, of Jesus calming the storm. And you look at, you know, these guys see a great sign and, oh, no, we're going to lose everything. The disciples see this great sign of the calming of the storm and the walking on the water. And what's their response? Who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? Yeah. So, I mean, they're they're missing the whole, the whole center point of uh, the, the whole importance of yeah. what's going on. And I think this is the result of a man-centered religion, which... Yes, absolutely. People rightly reject man-made religion. We reject it, too. Mm-hmm. 
But our case is that Christianity is not a man-made or man-centered religion. It's not man trying his best to rise up to be or to be with God or be equal with God. Mm-hmm. It is God stepping down, humbling himself to be found in the appearance of a man, mm. humbling himself to be a servant of all men and women, even to the point of death on a cross. So it's not us going up to God, but it's God coming down to us. That's an amazing thing. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, so if you find yourself thinking self-centeredly, then your highest goal is self-preservation. It may lead to some terrible things, as I've already mentioned, that Mm, if you reject Jesus Christ, you're just missing the greatest value, the the most valuable treasure that God is. Because really, Christianity is not just, it's not just we're giving people a carrot of eternal life. You know, Peter said, who else has the words of eternal life? We're going to keep following you. But even more valuable than preserving our life for eternity is Jesus himself. I can't emphasize that enough. You know, eternal life is valuable because we get to be with Jesus. Heaven isn't heaven unless God is there. That's right. Yeah, the ultimate treasure is not just eternal life or streets of gold or anything like that. Jesus himself is our treasure. Right. And that's a treasure we can even experience here on earth when we know him. Yeah, and we'll see in the next second half of what we read how Mary Mm -hmm. expresses that treasure. Yes. The other response is interesting. Uh, Caiaphas here, he was high priest that year. He told them that they know nothing at all. Mm. But he said something, and John gives the commentary that he actually prophesied something that was true that would come to pass. Mm -hmm. I don't know whether he realized it or not, because he was kind of on the wrong team at this point. Well, it's clear that God can and does work by his spirit, even through unbelievers. I mean, even brings to my mind um, King Saul and how he prophesied, even though he was being disobedient to God. But God giving him that office of high priest, which was an Old Testament biblical position that God could speak through a priest prophetically, here says this meaningful statement. I want to unpack this a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people not that the whole nation should perish. He prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Hmm. What does all that mean? Oh, boy, there's, you're right. There is so much to, to unpack there. But um... Better that one man should die for mm-hmm. the people than that the whole nation should perish. That's right. Dan, you often mention this on the streets. Your sin will be paid for. The question is, by whom? Yes, correct. <laughs> you're, you're right. Every sin, Scripture says, will be perfectly paid for. Exodus 34 says that God is good and loving and merciful, but that he will not leave the guilty unpunished. There will be punishment. But the question is, yeah, who pays? And, of course, we deserve to. Yeah, the wages of sin is death, it says in Romans 3.23. Yes. But the gift of God is eternal life. So how is it that we're not, uh, as Christians, how do we not perish? Well, the most famous Bible verse used to be John 3.16. Yeah. (laughs) For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whosoever will believe in him will not perish but have eternal life. Yeah, and and just looking at that and contrasting it with John 3.16 is one of the amazing things because the Jews at this point would have expected the Messiah just to come for Jews. But when God talks about, you know, loving the whole world, he's talking about Jews and Gentiles. And this passage goes on to to reinforce that, that not only not for the nation only, he wasn't dying only for Israel, but also to, um, to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So all of those other people, you know, who would become Christians would be part of one body. And that's really what we see today. Yeah, there may be a couple ways of interpreting that verse 52, not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God scattered abroad. One, you know, someone who is maybe more uh, Jewish-centered, Israel-centered, mm-hmm. may think, okay, there's the nation of Israel, people who actually live in the land of Israel, and then there's yeah, yeah, yeah. the children of God, meaning they think, only Jews are children of God that are scattered abroad yeah. because they have been scattered all over the world. 
Um, yeah, they called it the diaspora, if I remember mm-hmm. correctly. Right. You know, the, those who were scattered at the time. I, I think they were that that started in earnest at the time of the exile to Babylon, if mm-hmm. I remember correctly. Right. But that wouldn't necessarily uh, hold true with the whole context of the book of the Gospel of John, as yeah. chapter one says, he came to his own, that is the Jewish people. But mm-hmm. uh, they did not receive him. That is, the majority of people in the end rejected yeah, yeah. him. And here we see the culmination of that in chapter 12. But to as many as did receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God or to be called Amen. children of God. So the operative question, I think, is who has the right to be called children of God? And Dan, yes. I, heard, I heard in your interpretation that there are people who will believe in him. Sort of the mm-hmm. the elect, right? Are they maybe they're not the children of God yet, but Jesus would die for mm-hmm. for them so that they could be gathered uh, from all nations, not just Ju- Jewish roots, but Gentiles yeah. who uh, come to Jesus. They're the elect. They're the children of God. Is that correct? Yeah. Correct. Yeah. I mean, whether you come from a a more Calvinistic perspective like me or a more Arminian perspective, although I know you wouldn't put yourself just in that category, but more of that perspective, you know, there are the children of God are those who receive him, those who believe in his name. And those do come from all nations, every tribe and tongue and nation of the world. Yeah, that reminds me, we didn't have enough time to completely answer that question, the differences between Calvinism and Arminianism. <laughs> In fact, I had to completely cut out five minutes of our answers on that. Mm. So we might include that at the end of this broadcast, Yeah, because it, it was interesting. And it's, it is. We just want to be honest about where we come from, and we hope that yeah. we're good examples of Christians that can work together, even though we don't agree on all of the finer points of doctrine, or we're in different parts of the spectrum. Yeah. Personally, I do believe in what the Bible calls the elect, mm-hmm. and that is that God chooses people to save them. He does. Mm-hmm. I would love to give a couple cross-references here. There's one in particular that God gave to my wife and I as confirmation that we should... Uh, be missionaries mm. overseas. Second Timothy 2.10, Paul says, mm. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also mm-hmm. may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Amen. So the doctrine of predestination is a comforting one, uh, knowing mm-hmm. that God knows who, are, who is going to believe in him, and he yes. knows not only that, but he knows the means by which they're going to be saved, and that is mm-hmm. the preaching of the gospel. Paul Amen. said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God to everyone who believes. But it it's is, yes. So we just went out as missionaries, as we do every time we step out to share the gospel, believing mm-hmm. that there's some people that God calls them the elect, and they may obtain mm-hmm. salvation that is in Christ Jesus, according to that verse that I read. I don't know yes. who the elect are. There's no, like, you can't pull up their shirt and see an E on their chest. I no. think Spurgeon said something like that. It's like, since we don't know who the elect are, we just need to preach the gospel to everybody. And then, Amen. And then it will be revealed by their reaction, whether they believe or not, whether they're the elect yeah. or not. Yeah, it's when, it's when what are sometimes called extreme Calvinists come to the conclusion that they can determine who's elect and who's not, that things really get messy and ugly. <laughs> yeah. So we definitely don't want to go there. Yes, we want to preach the gospel to everyone, and God will, and God will save those who are his. Yeah, let's try to avoid the extremes and just stick with what yes. does the Scripture say. That's so, right. So if it talks about election and predestination, then I accept that. Yeah, absolutely. Me too. So, uh, which is interesting, because we're going to be talking about Judas as well, whether he was Mm -hmm. the elect or not. We'll deal with more of Judas later in the book. Yeah. Well, where do we go from here, Dan? Is there anything else in chapter 11 that we need to revisit before moving on to chapter 12? Talked about how the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders to anyone who knew where he was. Um, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Mm-hmm. And I think that's relative to, to chapter 12 because we're going to talk about, well, a little bit more about Judas. And it may be at this time that some of those thoughts of betrayal were starting to make their way into his mind, and he may have heard that from the Pharisees. But yeah. let's go ahead and look at the first couple of verses. So it says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So this was in, in pretty close proximity. I mean, what was this, maybe a week after he had raised him, something around there? 
I'm not sure about after he raised him, but I'm more interested in that this is, as it says, six days before Passover. Yes, yes. In the story, as we read in John, it seems like it might be immediate. But what we're seeing now is a transition in time from focusing on Jesus's three years of ministry to these last 11 chapters, focuses on the last week of his life leading up to the cross and beyond to the day he was resurrected. Yeah, it's a big shift. Yeah, it's a, why would the uh, and, and the other gospel authors write this way too? About half of each of the four gospels focus on that last week of Jesus's life mm-hmm. leading to the cross. What does that mean? Well, I mean, this is really, and uh, some people may have trouble accepting this, but this is really the pivotal moment in history. It really is. This is the we see in the beginning of the Bible, the creation. Um, We see at the end of the Bible, you know, the new heavens and the new earth. But the the whole center of the Bible is really about man being estranged from God, um, being at enmity with God. And it is here in these last seven days that God worked out his plan and accomplished salvation and reconciliation. And it's really at this point that we as human beings have the opportunity from going from despair to hope. And this is the most important thing that God ever did. And I think it's the greatest example of how God glorifies himself Mm -hmm. too, as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It tells us how important it is to not leave leave out the, the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. uh, And in in terms of having a full gospel message, the error that Mm -hmm. a lot of people make is when they only focus on Jesus's life, and they completely ignore mm-hmm. his death and resurrection because they want to yeah. look at Jesus just as a moral example that we should follow. Um, and the, that's only half of the story. Jesus lived a sinless life, yes, mm-hmm. but we are sinners. We haven't lived a sinless life. He died the death we should have died, uh, that he didn't deserve to die. And then he mm-hmm. rose from the grave. So these points are very central in our gospel message. I liked how you phrased yeah. it, Dan, with like you have the bookends of the Bible. Some people mm-hmm. put the, and, it, and this is pivotal. Some people, uh, I like these illustrations, like you can divide the Bible up by these three gardens, right? You have the Garden of Eden in the beginning that was lost, and then Jesus uh, surrendering before going through the, to the cross in the Garden mm-hmm. of Gethsemane. And then yes. in, in the end of the Bible, you have the garden restored, where we'll have access mm. to the tree of, of life once again. Or you can put it yeah. in terms of three trees. Humanity fell at the tree of the knowledge of mm. good and evil. Humanity is redeemed at the tree, which prophetically points to the cross of Christ. And humanity is restored there uh, at the tree of, the, of, of life in heaven. In eternity. Amen. Amen. Really good analogies. And, and, and yeah, you're right. And I think this is where a, a lot of churches can go sideways and a lot of Christians can go sideways where you come to Jesus, you get your fire insurance, and then you go on to bigger and better things. And, you know, and discipleship and living obediently and things like that are all amazing things that we should take very seriously. But there is nothing greater or more important than the death, burial, and resurrection mm-hmm. of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And we should be, we as Christians should be remembering that and preaching the gospel to ourselves every day. Yep. So in context, there is this foreboding uh, death hanging over. Uh, Jesus mm-hmm. is rushing headlong into it. I like what the uh, Bible Project uh, animation drew out of this, and that is by Jesus making his way to Bethany to raise Lazarus from the dead, and then having dinner there a week before Passover, he is giving life to his friend, but in on the other hand, he's it's kind of a death sentence for himself, because Bethany is yeah. right next to Jerusalem. Everybody knows the Jews are trying to arrest him and accuse him of some capital offense to have him killed, but Jesus willingly goes to lay down his life for his friend. And that's what the Bible says about the cross, that greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, but Christ died Mm. for us while we were still sinners. That's right. 
And it's and it's fascinating too for those who aren't as familiar with the background when we're talking about Passover, we're talking about that time because of course Passover was the celebration of the Israelites escaping from Egypt and the final plague where they had to kill the sacrificial lamb and put the blood on the doorposts and the lintel um, so that the angel of death would pass over them. And then it was then that, that God rescued Israel and brought them into the promised land. And, and my goodness, the, the, the direct analogy is amazing that we deserve death for our sins. The sacrificial lamb has been killed and it's by his blood that the angel of death will pass over us and will be delivered into the promised land. And it's it just it just blows me away so often that we see these analogies and these foreshadowings all through the Old Testament mm-hmm. leading up to this point. So many different things that point to it. Where I mean, you can't it would be silly to say that this was an accident or a coincidence. You know, right. God was trying to communicate in so many ways to make it clear as possible exactly what he was doing. And one of the people that did pick up on it, as in spite of the fact that many of the disciples were kind of dense, was Mary. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. Uh, what Jesus says about what she's about to do next uh, is that he that she was preparing something for the day of his burial, John 12, verse 7. So let's take a look at what, what she did. Let's go through that story where Mary anoints Jesus's feet uh, and it, this will be a beautiful picture of worship, and we ought to consider what is it that we can uh, can do to show how we value and worship Jesus. Hmm. So uh, let's read uh, John 12, verse 2, we'll go verse by verse. So they gave a okay. dinner for him there. Martha served, and, Larry, and Lazarus, I almost called him Larry, <laughs> <laughs> and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary took a pound of expensive ointment and made of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with fragrance of with the fragrance of the perfume. What kind, so just put put yourself in this picture. What is going on here? Is this a usual custom for the Jews at dinner time? Absolutely not. This was a it was a extravagant in one way and probably horribly awkward in another way. I mean, the kind of perfume that they're talking about, it says it it was valued at, what, 300 denarii? So this was almost a year's wages worth of perfume. That Mary gave up. Some, I, I, one of the commentators, commentators I listened to on this speculated that this, this could have been her dowry or part of her dowry. Yes. Because something like that, it's extremely valuable. It's small. It's portable. It's easy to sell. This was a source of, of ready money. And she poured all of it on Jesus' feet. Yeah. And so you could see somebody not really understanding the context or not yet realizing who Jesus was, looking at this and being shocked. Yeah. And and her letting her hair down. You know, it, it made me think of, of Islamic culture. And of course, we're not Muslims, and I, we disagree with a lot of stuff that they do. But there is a, a sense of propriety and a sense of, um, oh, what's the word that I'm, I'm looking for? Modesty. Um, Modesty. There you go. And so the reason, and some people, a lot of people probably don't know this, the reason Muslim women keep their hair covered, keep their hijab on, is because of some of the same principles that we see in the Bible, that a woman's hair is her glory. And it's, you know, and so Muslim women reserve that, that sight, that beauty, just for their husbands. And, and so in a similar culture, Jewish women didn't take down their hair like this. So this was, in some ways, probably considered scandalous that she would let her hair down like this in the presence of men and rub his feet with them. And and cleaning the feet was something that was, I mean, they, they all wore sandals. They walked around on dusty roads. <laughs> the, the, yeah. the washing of feet was something that the lowest of the servants did. Yeah, not just dusty roads, but they would throw their sewage out onto the roads and animals oh, yeah. are walking out and dropping stuff on the roads. Yeah, nasty stuff. It was customary to have a servant wash uh, the people's feet 
who were guests. The Pharisees didn't do that when Jesus was a guest over at their place. Um, yeah, and, yeah. you know, there were certain customs of the Jews, but she's taking it to the next level. It's not just as simply washing his feet with, you know, a bucket and some water and soap and using a sponge. It's She's using her hair, which was her glory. She yes. humbled herself to the point of wiping someone's feet with it. So it tells you something wow. of the value of the person that she's allowing her hair to touch the, the feet of. Yes. And also what elevates Jesus even more is, like you pointed out, the value of this uh, ointment was more was worth almost a year's wages. That's more than just a bucket of water and soap. It is. So this is kind of an ultimate type of offering that someone could possibly give. I mean, I don't know anyone who's given a year's wages to a church or a ministry. No. That probably happens sometimes. You know, some of these ministries have millions of dollars donated to to do great things in the name of Christ. Sometimes it's squandered, but but the truth is Christians do give to the Lord in a lot of different ways. And here Mary chooses to do something that, whether you call it uh, scandalous, or I would call it extravagant. Yeah. This is an extravagant gift. Yes. Jesus is worth more to her than a husband. Yeah. Amen. He's not her husband. He is her Lord, yeah. her Messiah, her Master, her Savior, and he's about to go and die for her sins. How grateful is she for that? I think she knows that Jesus is giving up his life for her as an individual and for the world, but has that ever dawned on you when you realize Jesus died for me, I remember when that hit me for the first time. I wept because I realized yeah. he he actually loves me that much that he was thinking of me on the cross. He could have not died for my sins, but he chose to. Yeah, I, I agree. Every once in a while, it even hit me a little bit today when I was thinking about this and, and watching a, a, a Christian movie, just thinking about the love of God and how amazing that is that God would choose to sacrifice himself for someone like me and just how unworthy I am of that love and how amazing it is. Yeah, it makes me weep sometimes. It really does. Um, and if we, you know, consider what we do deserve for our sin, you know, it's I had a conversation with somebody earlier this week about the idea of, uh, you know, sometimes when people share the gospel, rather than talking about hell, they'll talk about separation from God. And, and I, I don't like that, even though I understand what people are saying um, or meaning to say sometimes when they, when they say that. But I think it softens the blow. No, I deserve hell. I, separation, atheists want to be separated from God. A lot of people do. <laughs> but, but we have the, the choice. I mean, we, we deserve real punishment real torment. And Jesus took that torment. He took it on himself. There is a verse in Second Thessalonians talking about uh, being separated from the Lord. And yeah. it's one way of referring to hell without using the word hell. The scriptures say they will suffer puni- the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Yes. But I wouldn't say that verse waters it down. I think it no. it gives context to the presence of God is where his glory and his love and his light is enjoyed. And if you're away from that place, correct, there's the opposite in store for you. And you've heard me preach this on the streets. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Instead of being in his light, you'll be in outer darkness. That's a biblical yeah. description. Instead of being in... His love, you'll you'll be under his wrath. Instead of being yes. uh, in eternal life, you'll have eternal destruction. And I do believe yeah. and preach that hell is an eternal conscious torment uh, away oh, from yeah. the presence of the Lord. Oh yeah, you preach this well. It's it's not that. It's 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 once again. I I think people need to understand that judgment is a real thing. And the verse that I always um, think about is in the book of Revelations, where it talks about those who have received the mark of the beast and are thrown into fire, and it says they will be tortured in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb, Mm -hmm. and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. So there's a separation from God's goodness and love and mercy and being under the weight of his anger and wrath. So, so once again, there's, there's truth in both if you understand them in context and look at all of Scripture. That's the only thing I'm, I'm making the argument for, and I know you preach that. <laughs> okay. Kind of a side note, but I think an important one. Well, can we go on to the, verse 4? It talks about Judas's response to Mary's 
act of worship? Yes, absolutely. Sounds good. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, parentheses, he was about to betray him, and parentheses, mm. said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, mm. not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Yeah, he didn't really care about the poor. He was just saying, hey, I lost a little income here. And that's an accusation we hear often, actually, on the streets. People saying, oh, the whole church is, they don't care about the poor. They only care about getting rich. It is. Well, there may be some in the church, like Judas, who are false followers of Jesus and really are shouldn't be in that office. They betray the Lord. They abandon the Lord. They, you know, follow in the, in the error of Judas. But uh, you shouldn't judge all of the disciples just because one of the disciples was stealing from the money bag. Yeah. Well, I think, uh, honestly, I think a lot of people that make that argument on the street, it's really a throwaway argument. They want to find a, a way, as convenient way, to discredit Christians and discredit the Christian message. Now, of course, none of us are perfect and none of us do all that we should, but that's not really the question, is it? It's not the question that Judas raised on the surface, but what was going on underneath yeah. the surface. I'm glad that John had this insight here into Judas's yeah, yeah. You know, history. Obviously, he writes this after the fact, so looking back, you can see his real motives. But we can't really see people's motives, so we can't. maybe we can deal with the, the question in a way that maybe someone does have a sincere question about this. Yeah, there are some. Why wasn't this sold and given to the poor? Jesus cares about the poor, right? Oh, of course he does. Absolutely he does. I mean, he wouldn't have fed the 5,000 if he didn't. <laughs> yeah, but Jesus, I like that he comes to her defense. And in verse 7, he answers the, the stated question without necessarily uh, accusing his motives. He just defends Mary. He says, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. So let's interpret that. Leave her alone. I think that means don't judge her for her act of worship. That's between her and me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he says this is an appropriate thing in light of two things. One, that they won't always have Jesus with them because he's going to be dying and being buried. And two, you do always have the poor with you. So not that you shouldn't ever give to the poor. There will come a time when you need to give to the poor yeah. before and after your offering to the Lord, but you shouldn't neglect the Lord. Jesus here, in a rare case, uh, in a rare example of standing up for his own value as the Son of God, says, you don't always have me. And, you know, just on that note, Jesus humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death as a servant, mm -hmm. but that mm -hmm. doesn't mean that he's only worth uh, a servant. He is Lord of Lords and King of Kings, and there's sometimes when we need, it's best for us just to recognize how much he's worth, and yes. worship does that. It helps us get our mind on what is truly valuable. I think of it and just take the word worth-ship you know, that's yeah. what worship means. Yeah. You're showing what you value, and we should worship God and nothing else. Him only shall you serve. That's the first and second commandments, to love the Lord yeah. your God, worship Him only, don't make an idol out of anything or anyone. And some people make an idol out of the poor, as if that's the highest value, is giving to the poor, doing yeah. your, your, your deeds of charity and generosity. Jesus said, don't give to the poor in such a way that people will glorify you, otherwise you have your reward. Yeah. But do things for the glory of God. That's what's most important. It reminds me of um, speaking with, with Dave on the radio this last Friday, and I think it was his son that asked him about prayer, and, and he brought up the topic. And so one of the things that I will encourage people to do when they're praying is to go through the Lord's Prayer, not repeating it verbatim, um, the Bible actually speaks against that kind of thing, but taking each section of that prayer and kind of unpacking it and trying to understand what it means. And at the beginning of that, and of course that's the model prayer given by Jesus himself, mm -hmm. our Father who are in heaven, hallowed be your name, let your name be holy, let your name be glorified, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It starts with the glory of God. You know, that's that's the focus point. 
And that's what we should start too. That should be our ultimate goal and purpose in life, right? The yes. Westminster's Catechism says, what is mm-hmm. the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, something like that. Yes, yes, exactly that. And there's a wise man with a website with the tagline, to see souls saved and to see God glorified. <laughs> you can probably Google that and find out whose website that is. It's Dan's, Your Soul Matters. Yes, to give God glory and to see souls saved. That should be our focus. Yeah, we're not just trying to, I mean, we are very motivated by compassion for the lost, for the poor, for uh, the the dying but I think uh, the greatest motivation is for the glory of God, because that's ultimately why Jesus came to die for our sins, because it brings God glory. And, you know, it's it's his obedience to the Father and his love for us, even while we we're sinners, that helps us to recognize how great God is, how loving he is, how holy he is, how just he is, all of his attributes, they can be seen through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And we hope that our act of worship, as simple as it might be, whether it's at a dinner table or in church on Sunday morning or just obeying the Lord in the day in, day out at work or preaching the gospel on the streets, all of these different ministries to people can be done in a way that glorifies God. Jesus said, Amen. Let your light so shine before men that when they see your good deeds, they will glorify your Father in heaven. Yes. Very well said. Thanks. So, uh, one other thing, as you mentioned your radio show the other day, uh, Colonel Terry called while you were on, and he called while I was on uh, the a couple weeks earlier, <laughs> and he had the same old tired argument, like, why would a God of love ever allow like the people of Ukraine to suffer? You know, even Dave said, well, God could stop the rockets from hitting the maternity homes and the and stuff. He could, but it's this, it's kind of the same spirit in which Judas says this, like. Shouldn't something be done for the poor? But really, let's talk about the, the the false motives why people say this. And my response to Colonel Terry was similar to yours, but slightly different. It was, well, how much... You claim to care about the Ukrainians. How much have you given to help the people over there? And let me tell you about the Christians I know who are putting their lives in danger to help Amen. those who are in, are in places. So don't tell me. <laughs> I got a little fired up. <laughs> I was like, don't, you did, yeah. don't come across as self-righteous like you're the one that cares for the poor and the dying. Uh, mm. when all he, and he, on the show, he said to you, oh, well, I've written letters to Washington. So? How does that help anybody? Yeah. He just comes across so self-righteously, but he doesn't yeah. have a moral uh, foundation that he stands on. No, he's just trying to object to Christianity, and and that's that that's common. But I, I do want to encourage people too, since you you've brought it up, if you haven't listened already, um, go back and uh, listen to our podcasts. There were two of them where Brenton talked to pastors over in Ukraine. They were hugely encouraging to me, and I think it's really important so that people can can get a feel. I think an unbiased feel for what's really going on on the ground over there, number one. And number two, to see what Christians do in situations like this. It's one thing to say Christians care about these people and that people. But when you hear these stories about Christians choosing to remain, you know, in in horrendously dangerous situations um, for for the glory of God and for the sake of their fellow man, it really makes an impact. So I, I think that those those pastors you talk to are really represent. That's Christianity in action. That's yeah. the way it should look. That's the the church is called the body of Christ, and we are His hands mm-hmm. and feet. And when one part of the body suffers, the rest of the body suffers with them. Amen. And uh, that's because of the love of God in us. And so just it is. be careful, friends, when you hear these accusations of how unloving the church is and how the church should do this or that or how God should do this or that. It usually comes from people who lack love and are, and they just use that as a facade for rejecting Jesus. And so as we as we wrap up, the last few verses of that we're going to look at today, the last few verses we already read uh, here in John chapter 12, verse 9 through 11, again, we see the Jews that decide in verse 10, so the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. 
choose your team carefully because <laughs> if you want to be on, yes. the, on the wrong side of history, then you're going to side with those who are choosing murder over life, death over life. But I encourage you, choose life. Jesus is the resurrection and the life, and you can receive him and receive resurrection and life through faith in him, as many on this day do believe in Jesus because of Lazarus and because Jesus was revealed to them. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Well, that's a good ending. I like that. Many people were believing in Jesus. I hope that (laughs) maybe by the end of this program, many people listening will believe in Jesus. Amen. I pray they do. Yeah. So I hope that Jesus has been revealed to you today, and we thank you for listening to Dwell on Truth. You can also go back and listen to uh, the podcasts that uh, are at zbsradio.com for the dates that Dan and I were on the Flight 1080 show and see how we do apologetics. Yes. In person, we try to do it with love and patience. I kind of lost my patience with Colonel Terry that time. But, well, you love people over there. You have connections there. Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah. it, I, I can understand that. But Dave said, if that's losing your temper, man, you got to see me when I lose my temper. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. yeah. So, so yeah, I would encourage people to go back and listen. And- Very good. And if you want to know which dates, you'll if you do go back to listen to Dan and me on the Flight 1080 show, you'll need to know the dates. Ah, yes. I was on Good Friday, which was April... 15th, 2022. And Dan was on this last Friday, correct? Yes. Yes. April, April 29th. And you were on from five o'clock? Five to six. Okay, perfect. And since we have five more minutes left in the program, we're going to play the rest, the remainder of our answer to the question, what is Calvinism? As our apologetic segment concludes this episode today. Thank you again for listening, and here is the apologetic segment, Q&A, with Brenton Powers and Daniel Bowden. But that led to the question of, what is Calvinism? And I could give my summary of it, but I said that, well, it's probably better to ask somebody who is a Calvinist, because I don't want to wrongly represent it. Okay. But in our brief Q&A time that we have left, Dan, would you want to share what is Calvinism? And uh, I'll try to give a simple view on the difference between Calvinism and Arminianism, because those are kind of the two major camps when it comes to um, how the salvation process works. Okay. Um, So both sides would agree that salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone and all for the glory of God. There's no difference there. The difference would be, I think, on the Arminian side, you know, that a man chooses, you know, to put their trust in Jesus Christ When they do that, the Holy Spirit indwells that person. They are saved and born again, and God changes them from the inside out. Is that an accurate description? It's hard to say what the Arminianist position is because there's a whole spectrum. That's true. Okay, fair enough. Um, Mm -hmm. And then contrasting that with Calvinism, I would say that, that your Calvinist would generally say that a man in and of themselves, because of their deadness and sin, is unable to make a choice to follow Christ. So the change by the Holy Spirit that we both believe happens um, must start, and it must start before a person comes to Christ. So the Holy Spirit comes and changes a person's heart so they desire to come to Christ, and then that person puts their trust in Christ, Mm -hmm. um, and is born again. So in both cases, it's by the Spirit of God. But in Calvinism, the deadness in sin means that man will never choose in and of themselves to come to Christ and must be regenerated by the Holy Spirit first. Does that make sense? Sure. The answer I gave him over the phone Mm -hmm. was basically the way that Calvinists sum up their five major points is in the acronym TULIP, correct? Yes. What is TULIP? TULIP is um, five points of Calvinism, which were actually put together in response to five points of Arminianism that were disagreements against the standard views of theology. But the five points are total depravity, 
um, that a, a man is is totally depraved, that doesn't mean it's as bad as he could be, um, but he's always going to naturally have a tendency toward toward sin and rebellion against God. Unconditional election, um, which is that God um, elects people, chooses his people um, despite um, anything that they would have done and, and apart from any look at their own behavior or worthiness, I guess is a way to put it. Um, limited atonement um, is the L, which means that, um, and, and I'm not a Calvinist scholar, so I'm giving short mm-hmm. definitions that I hope are accurate. Limited atonement means that the the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, though it was sufficient for all, was efficient only for those who are his elect, who he's called to himself. So from that perspective, Jesus didn't die for everybody. He died for his sheep. He died for his elect. Um, mm. um, and then the I would be, um, oh, wipe my, my Irresistible mind. grace. Thank you. <laughs> it's my belief system and I forget it. Irresistible okay. grace, which means that if you are called, if God does call you to himself, and and redeems you you cannot and will not fall away from that grace you you know god called you back from the dead and you are his and then perseverance of the saints which means that um um it is Im- impossible for you to lose your faith the grace of god draws you and it keeps you does that make sense yeah and in contrast to that i i like a uh, teaching that mark driscoll gave where he just lined up the five points of calvinism with the five points of arminianism yes. and also gave a little bit of a critique that both of them are kind of a reaction to the other yes. and sometimes people are not comfortable with the way this is formulated but yeah, here's yeah. the five points of arminianism in contrast instead of total depravity they believe in free will Mm-hmm. Instead of unconditional election, they believe in conditional election. Mm-hmm. God chose, chooses those who will choose him. He Correct. looks down the quarter of time and sees who will choose to believe, and he chooses Correct. them. Yeah. Uh, limited atonement uh, versus Ar- the Arminianist perspective is yeah. universal atonement, that Christ yes. died for everyone, but it doesn't apply to everyone if they don't receive it. It's a free gift that's purchased, but not everyone benefits Correct. from it. Fourth, instead of irresistible grace, there's resistible grace. Obviously, it's what the opposite, that you can resist God's wooing and drawing mm-hmm. and the work of the Holy Spirit to change your heart. Um, and fifth, the opposite of perseverance of all saints is the per- perseverance of some saints. Mm. Thus, you have the encouragement in the Bible to persevere, and he who holds fast to the end will mm-hmm. be saved. So that's Calvinism, Arminianism in a nutshell, and yes. we're not going to debate it here, nope. but that's the answer <laughs> to your question. Yes. By the same token, it's a secondary issue, and we should be able to work together harmoniously, and we do yeah. most of the time. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's room for grace in the body of Christ. And if you want to reach out to us and talk to us about today's show or suggest questions that we may answer at the end of future shows, you can find us at oacnorcal.org or on dwellontruth.org. Both of those sites have the past podcasts there. And we hope that you will join us next week as we dwell on truth. Today's episode is brought to you by generous support of Christians who have partnered with us as missionaries through open-air campaigners or through patreon.com slash dwellontruth. Christians who would like to be part of changing lives through sending us out as missionaries to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I'd love to share some ways with you that you may want to participate in to share in the fruit and joy and blessing of God's work. Be part of fulfilling God's will for your life by fulfilling the greatest commandments to love God and love people and fulfilling the great commission to go in his authority, preaching the gospel, making disciples, and bringing glory to Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for listening to Dwell on Truth. This is Brenton Powers. Tune in again next week and we will resume our study in the gospel according to John 